Hello and welcome to Prospect Lives. Each month our family of seven writers discuss their different views of modern life at Prospect magazine. Spanning a wide range of society, their reflections provide a window into their particular worlds and an insight into how they navigate their way through the challenges life throws at them. This month our writers are divided in their approach to 2024. Some are looking forward towards the future, others are reflecting on the past. Sex worker Tilly Lawless is in a new kind of relationship with new norms for communication. Actor Sheila Hancock is renouncing republicanism after developing an affection for the royals in her older age. Meanwhile, Sarah Collins, who suffers with OCD, reflects on how a health incident from years ago has sparked a present-day obsession. And a chat with his father gives farmer Tom pause for thought about his physical fitness on the farm. But let's begin with our sporting life writer, Emma John, who finds herself as a first reserve for a terrifying team toboggan ride. I can remember the exact moment that my love of skiing died. I was following a friend who was a far better skier than me down a black run. He had insisted I was more than capable of the feat, despite the fact I'd spent the rest of the week on the reds. Halfway down, we stopped at the edge of an escarpment of sheer ice. Ah yes, said my friend, this is the bit the World Cup skiers jump over. Lacking the chops for aerial manoeuvres, I inched my way down the piste that was no piste, the ungainly planks strapped to my feet, conspiring with gravity in their murderous attempt to hurl me to the bottom. I was freezing cold and burning hot, and every muscle in my body screamed with effort. When I made it down, we still had half the run to go. That was over 15 years ago, and I haven't missed skiing at all. The faff-to-fun ratio was never in the right proportions for me anyway. Carrying around equipment that weighed the same as a weekly grocery shop, long, uncomfortable walks to long, uncomfortable lifts... The numbing of toes and fingers and face for the sake of a fleeting hit of adrenaline. No, my friend did me a favour with that surprise World Cup run. He gave me the motivation I needed to quit. No other winter sport ever took its place. My body doesn't especially enjoy sub-zero temperatures. And my one experience on a curling rink taught me that winter sports are just as cold indoors as they are outside. I appreciate that the activity itself will warm you up if you give it enough oomph, but that tells you all you need to know about my oomph. It is therefore an unpleasant shock that I may later this month be hurtled down a mountain on the tobogganing equivalent of a tea tray. By the time you hear this, I could be recuperating in a Swiss hospital. A long-standing obsession with the glamour of the interwar period and its golden age of travel has persuaded me to join a trip to Sam Moritz, alongside a team of friends who are taking on the infamous Cresta Run for charity. First built in 1884, the Cresta Run is a one-person bob run akin to the skeleton event at the Olympics, except you're permitted to attempt it after three days of training rather than three years. The average descent covers three-quarters of a mile in just over a minute – although practised athletes who reach speeds of 80 miles per hour can do it a lot faster. 
Apparently, only five people have died in the attempt, which is considered a reassuringly low figure across the event's 139 years. This is largely down to the fact that the legendary shuttlecock bend halfway down acts as a safety valve, spitting out riders who are going too fast at a dangerous angle and ejecting them off the course onto a bank of hay bales and powdery snow. I have no daredevil aspirations. My intended position on the team is that of observer, to record and promote my friend's efforts in order to raise as much money as possible for good causes. And yet, there is a long tradition of journalists finding themselves roped into the very thing they were sent to cover. I have now seen my name on the team sheet as first reserve, and given the chances of injury, not to mention the dropout rate when people see what they're actually facing, there is a very genuine danger of my own participation. Among my research... I found a report by Ian Wooldridge, one of the greatest sports writers of all time, who was persuaded to take on the Cresta run for a Daily Mail feature. He wrote afterwards that it was the second greatest thrill that life has to offer. He also said he was so enduringly terrified he would never do it again. I don't want to do it once. And yet I am aware that, until 2018... Women were not ordinarily allowed on the course, and the fighting feminist part of my brain is threatening to override every safety protocol I usually cling to. The first of which is, don't throw yourself down an icy incline on a tea tray. Anglican priest Alice Goodman reflects on anti-Semitism in the church. Last August, the Jewish community in York welcomed the city's first rabbi since 1290, when the Jews were expelled from England. Dr. Elisheva Salomo, a liberal rabbi, liberal because the nearest Orthodox synagogue is in Leeds, and Orthodox Jews need to be able to walk to Sabbath services. While there have been flourishing Jewish communities for generations elsewhere in Yorkshire, York was notorious as the city where one of England's worst anti-Semitic atrocities took place, the massacre at Clifford's Tower in 1190. This was a big deal. At least it was a big deal for Jews around the world. It was less important for the Church of England. Last year, the Archbishop of York welcomed the rabbi with a tweet It is good to hear that York is to have its first rabbi in 800 years. I look forward to meeting Rabbi Dr. Elisheva Salomo when she begins her role in our historic city. Welcome. I learned about Clifford's Tower when I was a child. The phrase, our historic city, made me wince. Why is York historic as far as Jews are concerned? It's historic because we Christians, and I include myself and the Archbishop in that we, committed an atrocity there. The Archbishop spoke with the best of intentions. It just gave me a pain where my Jewishness meets my Christianity. That moment now seems like a point of light in a distant galaxy. The 7th October happened, and the Israeli attack on Gaza 
and the world of my Jewishness and my Christianity is tangled like never before. I'm familiar with the way anti-Semitism creeps into criticism of Israel, and criticism of Israel is regularly conflated with anti-Semitism. This has escalated to the point where Israel's ambassador to the Vatican, asked by a reporter about the shooting of two women within the precincts of a Catholic church in Gaza, described the allegation as an instance of the blood libel. If you've never heard of it, the blood libel is the myth that Jews kill Christian children at Passover and use their blood to make matzah. Calling out the nationalistic violence of the IDF and the settler movement isn't in itself anti-Semitic. We have supporters of the Israeli government calling out anti-Semitism where it is not. But at the same time, genuine anti-Semitism bubbles up from the storm drains like sewage. Anti-Semitism is part of European folklore and fictional stereotypes, linking Rumpelstiltskin with the goblins of Gringotts Wizarding Bank and the black dwarves of Narnia. It surfaces in the works of T.S. Eliot and some of his friends, like a turd in our cultural soup. Anti-Semitism is irrational, but those who stir it are quite rational. Better that the people hate the unassimilable stranger than the government when times are hard. There's also the anti-Semitism that I'm now seeing coming from within the Church of England. Years ago, I heard a seminarian preach, if Jesus were to be born now, he would not be born a Jew. Some of my fellow clergy say they can't bring themselves to pray the Psalms anymore, that they can't stomach the Old Testament reading at morning prayer, and even that the readings we've been getting from the prophets on Sundays are offensive. Too much of God's covenant with Israel too much anger, imprecation, and lament. Above all, too much about the land. Then there are all the references in our hymns to places like Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Those are giving people the fantods as well. I once worked as the teaching assistant for a professor who insisted that the characteristic heresy of Anglicanism wasn't Pelagianism, the idea that you can save your own soul by hard work and clean living, but Marcionism, the idea that the Old Testament and the God of which it speaks, the creator of the world, are incompatible with Christ and need to be jettisoned. That's happening by default. To keep the Sunday service to a brisk 45 minutes, many churches jettison one of the two readings that come before the Gospel, almost always the one from the Hebrew Bible. Only a couple of days ago, I was asked whether I would talk about the Old Testament to the youth group at a parish down the road. There are three members of clergy at that church. None of them felt equal to the task. This matters for Christians. We are grafted into a living tree. That tree is Judaism. Anti-Semitism matters even for those who are not Christian, who are not religious in any way. It is the death-dealing, ghoulish hatred of the neighbor. I feel its presence in the claim that Jews can only be safe in the state of Israel.
it should be obvious by now that there is no land on earth where people, whether Gentiles or Jews, are safe. In front of me on my desk is a Bundist poster from 1918, whose motto translated into English says what I want to shout. Wherever we live, that's our homeland. Take out a digital subscription to Prospect and you can enjoy a one-month free trial to our digital content. You'll immediately get full access to rigorously fact-checked, truly independent analysis and perspectives. There's no commitment and you can cancel at any time. To take advantage of this offer, visit our website or go to your favourite search engine and search for Prospect Magazine subscription. Tom Martin has disappeared to discover he needs a gym membership as his farm life is much less active than it was in the 1950s. My New Year's resolutions for 2024 included losing little weight and improving my fitness. I'm not alone. Last year, more than half of Brits resolved to work on their fitness, many of them wanting to shift pounds or drop a dress size. Making it happen has proved trickier than I expected. As a farmer, I'm pretty active, outdoors every day doing physical work, keeping myself in shape. Or so I thought. I've discovered that it doesn't take much Christmas indulgence to make my coat look like a skin on a sausage and my trousers strain enough to throw a buckle. I was talking with my father recently about working conditions on the farm in the 1950s and he made me realise that we have it easy these days. My dad described the process of planting seed in the 1950s as involving two men, one driving the tractor and the other standing on the back of the planter all day lifting sacks of seed and fertiliser to feed them into the machine. Fertiliser bags weighed what was then called a hundredweight, a whopping 50.8 kilograms or 112 pounds. Bags of seed weighed a hundredweight and a half, 76.2 kilograms or 168 pounds, and they were also moved by hand. This is the same weight category as a light heavyweight boxer. Imagine lifting and shifting Sugar Ray Leonard at his heaviest, or Evander Holyfield at his lightest, all day long. Everything was unloaded, stacked, stored, and transported by hand. In the winter, men would dig ditches, not with a mechanical excavator or digger, like today, but with a spade. Hedges were cut or laid with a hand-held billhook, back-breaking work in all weathers. One man worked on my grandfather's farm, ten months of the year doing this, and for the other two he helped with the harvest. At harvest time, there were more than 20 people on the farm, with some taking holiday from their usual workplaces to help out. Bags of grain would be filled by hand from a chute on the -the state-of-the-art new combined harvester and dropped in pairs to be loaded onto trailers and taken back to the farm, all by hand. And men worked outside all day with scant protection from the dust or sun. Working outdoors in all weathers was a common theme, and in practice there was no paid sick leave or holiday. In the winter, cattle were fed in yards by hand, which involved carrying bales of hay and straw from the shed to the cattle and distributing it amongst them. Gender diversity was very much a thing in the 1950s, and women carried out hard physical labour as well. One of the labourers, Annie Kirk, was in her 40s, when my father first remembers her, thin as a rake and fit as a flea, feeding all the cattle in one farm, 
through the winter single-handedly. Many men and women worked all week until Saturday lunchtime and would spend evenings and weekends tending their own gardens, growing vegetables, digging allotments or doing household chores which included bringing in firewood, taking out ash and boiling water to wash clothes by hand. Before 1934 in our village, people would fetch water from the well by hand too. The one job that persists today in a low-tech style that would be recognisable to a 1950s farm worker is sweeping the farmyard, a job that I prefer to do in wet weather as it's easier with water and warms me such that I don't feel the rain. Today, on our medium-sized family farm that just 70 years ago required a workforce of up to 22, I complete almost all jobs myself with help from my father and a few others at harvest time. I expend a fraction of the energy of the average labourer just a few decades ago. Though modern technology would have amazed them, I'm sure men and women working in the 1950s would have found my contemplating a gym membership to be utterly shameful. Life at work and home was workout enough for them. Perhaps I should forgo the gym and get back to sweeping. When Sheila Hancock looks back on her relationship with the monarchy, she realised it was time to renounce her previous republicanism, even if that damages her lefty credentials. Having struggled frantically through decades of life, I did hope for a modicum of peace in old age, a bit of wisdom, perhaps, a few answers to cosmic questions. Forget it. My dominant emotion, as I get near to oblivion, is uncertainty. For instance, my body. Which bit is going to cease to function next? The ominous risk of having a fall haunts me. From bestriding the narrow world like a colossus, I now need something to hang on to. My unreliable heartbeat necessitates medications to thin my blood, thereby giving me the dubious choice of a stroke or bleeding to death. But the worst manifestation of uncertainty is the turmoil it causes in my belief system. What do I really believe in, rather than what do I think I should believe? I have always thought of myself as a lefty, dedicated to equality and, coming from a working-class background, deeply resentful of the class system. Many a time and oft, I have declared that inherited wealth and status are grossly unfair. Am I now old enough to sheepishly confess that I am glad we will not become a republic in my lifetime, to admit that this Quaker, this socialist, was thrilled to be offered a damehood, that I am still the child who, during the war, listened to messages on the wireless from the little princesses and loved them and their pretty frocks. I was flabbergasted when the one who became queen gave me a prize. All this dishonourable confusion came to the fore when I was invited last year to take part in a Hughes Christmas carol service in Westminster Abbey, where I will be able to introduce my besotted granddaughter Rosie to the organiser Catherine, Princess of Wales. At a time when the Covid inquiry was exposing the ugly, amoral incompetence of our government, it was healing to be in a congregation of 
2,000 people who have dedicated their lives to the care of young children. They came from all over Britain and were glowing with excitement at the recognition of their service. One midwife told me it was the best day of her life and several others concurred. The austere abbey was warmed by the feeling of community and above all, infectious affection for the young royals. I know, I know, a bit of the old me was disturbed too. While Rosie and I waited to greet the princess, I was reminded of the first time I met the Queen many years ago. We were given a little lecture about how we should not say anything at all if she did not speak first. We were told how to address her, how to curtsy, and a lot of stuff about gloves. If her madge was not wearing them, we should put ours on to shake her hand. Panic stations, I had no gloves. Eventually, a man wearing a lot of gold braid and feathers solemnly handed me a pair of white cotton ones. He then giggled, and I saw him pointing at a man who was hiding behind a pillar, a long-term fan of mine who worked on the housekeeping staff of the palace, giving me the thumbs up. Beneath the grandeur was fun and warmth. There was no such formality for the current Princess of Wales. She strode in, looking sensational, and started chatting to everyone. The techies on the show told me that she had worked very hard getting it organised. Uh, the Prince William, who was also there, has spent the morning visiting the homeless in hostels and selling the big issue. His mother trained them well. What's more, at a time when the arts are threatened by a Philistine government that could not care less about culture, it is a relief to have a king who goes to the theatre, knows about music and the environment and seems to care about the well-being and health of his subjects. I'm reminded of a tale about Winston Churchill, which I hope is true. When he was asked to cut the arts budget to buy more arms during the war, he refused, saying, but what are we fighting for? After watching the faithless ex-Prime Minister lying about evidence of his laziness and neglect, it was refreshing to see the beautiful royal parents and children smiling and waving at the proud, good people in the Abbey. Like them, I loved all the pomp and ceremony and choral magic. For three hours, we forgot the ugly world outside. Of course, the hereditary system is nonsense, but we do not seem to have done very well with voting either. We have chosen some awful leaders. At the end of the service, as the minor royals processed past us, some of them looked unappealing, almost a caricature of the upper class. But we struck lucky with the late dedicated queen and the present dignified king, and the next lot seemed to bode well too. I wish them well. At 90 years old, it is time to face my hypocrisy, embrace my contradictions and uncertainties, and be brutally, embarrassingly honest with myself and you. For Gen Zia, Alice Garnett, a new year is an opportunity to add some structure to her usually spontaneous life. The allure of habit tracking has been particularly potent for me in these past few months. 
colourful bullet journals, period trackers, exercise logs, all are ways to gain some illusion of progress or healing from the mental health dip I have been experiencing. I record my nicotine and alcohol intake and I monitor both my menstrual cycle, which have been thrown out of whack following the traumatic summer of 2022, and the number of kilometres I can manage to run before either my legs or lungs give way. The rise of toxic productivity culture, which glamorises hustling one's way to the top, no matter the sacrifices, coupled with the sense that time is a precious, scarce commodity, has made Gen Z obsessed with tracking as many aspects of our lives as possible. We feel we must optimise the ways in which we spend our time to become the best version of ourselves. Hashtag bullet journal has 4.8 billion views on TikTok, with countless videos of aesthetically decorated diary pages that break each day down into the minutiae. In these journals, there are columns for your daily goals and lengthy to-do lists, with lines not only for the larger tasks like the weekly shop or tackling laundry, but for every detail of your well-being. Hours of sleep, litres of water consumed, minutes of meditation, screen time, etc. How are we supposed to find the time to log our every move? Who is able to meticulously curate a life like that and actually stick to it? Me, I suppose. Or at least I'm doing my best to track four or five basic habits. I mean, I was the kind of child who had a very well-stocked pencil case at school, so the idea of a grown-up star chart where I can award myself pastel blobs for going for a run, eating three meals or for going nicotine is very appealing. I look for patterns, for correlations between mood, exercise and menstrual phase. My period tracker flow provides helpful insights that occasionally validate my feelings. I wonder why I feel so agitated, why I haven't slept well for a few days, and Flo helpfully informs me that I'm in my luteal phase, the week of misery leading up to a period. But sometimes it misses the mark entirely, cropping up with a notification saying I might feel calmer than usual when I'm experiencing a resting heart rate of 120 BPM. Documenting my habits is helping me stick to good ones, and I wonder how long it will be before I begin to feel the benefit of my new loose exercise regime and a reduction in, not a cessation of, my vices. Impatient for progress, I dabble with the idea of going all out and establishing some radically different lifestyle for myself. One in which every hour, every minute is accounted for in the name of productivity and proactive healing. However, I can never lose sight of the reality that life is messy. Not everything is quantifiable and progress certainly isn't linear. Fastidious habit tracking might enable you to spot patterns like correlations between drinking and low mood, lack of sleep and poor eating habits. But there are too many variables in the human condition which all uniquely compound one another to gain the sort of control that some young people seem to crave. While I'm a partial convert, I will never be a full-on bullet journal influencer. I could never follow the 5 to 9 regime, which begins at 5am with a meditation and ends with a strict 9pm bedtime, ruling out any chance of post-work pints. Unlike the ambitious and highly accomplished, I'm sure, 
young women who do follow a clean girl life. My time's for sharing. A regimented lifestyle doesn't leave room for consoling best friends through unexpected breakups, spontaneous dates or accidental late nights spent catching up with old friends. I want to live my life from moment to moment, not within the rigid lines of any bullet journal. However, a little more structure has been a useful way to keep the extreme feelings that come with depression in check. Ultimately, I'm using the to-do lists and diaries and apps as stabilizers. They are a temporary aid to help me get back on track with the basics, like showering regularly and eating three meals a day. As soon as I feel happy and healthy enough to, I will remove the stabilizers and resume my fancy-free lifestyle. In the meantime, I'll be noting down how much water I drank today in my bullet journal. Sydney-based sex worker Tilly Lawless navigates the nuances of communication with a partner who has a very different dating history to her own. I've recently started seeing someone new and she's been sending me mixed messages. When I asked her about it, she explained that it was confusing to date a girl for the first time and she wasn't quite sure how to behave. When I date men, I am mean to them and they love it. If I'm mean to you, you cry and I don't want you to cry. It made me think about the ways we've been socialized by not just our communities and our friendships, but also by our romantic relationships. We've learnt different ways of flirting, facilitating intimacy and working through conflict that have stood us both in good stead with our previous partners, mine being lesbians and trans mask people, hers being straight men, but don't work so well with each other. We're both unable to predict how the other will react based on people we've dated before. I've had to let go of my emotional confessionals and long winding conversations as they don't generate closeness and to try to learn new modes of relating to a romantic partner. Our worlds are similar in some ways. They're both populated by gay men, trans women and sex workers. Through that, we have a shared sense of humour, flippancy towards sex, attitude to partying and understanding of cultural tropes. I'm used to spending time with lesbians and trans men though, and she is familiar with straight men in a way I've never been. She knows firsthand how playing power games with them often works in her favour. A trans man friend of mine says that straight people sometimes use bickering as a form of foreplay or as the last refuge of affection in their relationships. What the girl I'm dating said has made me contemplate that anew. Straight relationships are mostly opaque, uninteresting and repetitive to me, but now that I am dating someone who has engaged with them almost exclusively in the past, I find myself interrogating the dynamics of heterosexuality more. I also have a newfound solidarity with straight women as, for the first time in my life, I'm dating someone with a penis. When we began having unprotected sex, I sought advice from the sexual health clinic I go to. I'm dating a trans girl. She sleeps with men too, but she uses condoms and is on prep and we have vaginal sex and she hasn't been on hormones for six years. The doctor told me, your risk for HIV is low, but you do have to think about pregnancy, which threw me. I had to think about what? Suddenly pregnancy changed from dirty talk and the ultimate fantasy, something I had yearned for as you do with the unachievable, dreaming of castles in the sky, to something I had to worry about and protect against. It made our relationship feel higher stakes too, in a way I never anticipated. I risk not just STIs with every encounter, a reality I've grown accustomed to with sex work, but a whole baby? Something I desperately want, but I'm not certain in what circumstances or at which time. 
Pussy and pregnancy are completely new to her too. When I first told her not to come in me, she said, completely without irony, why? A gay friend of mine joked that we are taking a crash course in advanced queer education with each other right now, as we are adapting to new relationship structures in our 30s. It's true that we are learning with each other, and it is something that I find both challenging and fascinating. However, if you subscribe to the theory of queer temporality, the idea that life for queer people progresses at a different pace than for straight people, with different cultural markers and passages, maybe it's appropriate that we sound like two teenagers, as a straight girlfriend says to me. I certainly feel as if I'm back with my high school girlfriend and that I can sense we are feeling things out with each other. It's a bit of trial and error and a lot of fun. And finally, OCD sufferer Sarah Collins explains why health anxiety needs to be taken more seriously. I was in a restaurant in the market town of Yarm in August 2021 when I started to feel odd. Not just a bit odd, really odd. I was lightheaded and dizzy and struck with a sense of doom. I felt unbelievably hungry and was taunted by the plates of food being delivered to other tables. I didn't just want their food, I needed their food. At first, I thought I was having a panic attack and felt an urge to be outside. As I sat down at a table on the pavement at the front of the restaurant, my vision began to fade. Everything went black. I woke up face down on the tarmac. Little did I know that I came to at the feet of a group of teenage boys, none of whom, for the record, made any attempt to help me, that this incident would spark a new obsession that would reach its peak two and a half years later. Anyone who has experienced hypoglycemia will recognise the warning signs I missed. In the post-pandemic frenzy of being on holiday with friends, I made the error of eating 17 sherbet lemons and not much else after walking up a big hill. In the following week, I had all the necessary blood tests, which proved that my episode was not caused by diabetes or any other medical condition. I'm just one of those people who's prone to getting the shakes if they eat too much sugar on an empty stomach. My body having a quirk like this was not a surprise to me. It has always been a bit weird. My friend describes my body as 90% functional. All my limbs and vital organs work, but the last 10% of me is irritatingly broken. My skin has no barrier to infection and flares up with eczema and even low-level sunlight. I have bad asthma and an allergy to nuts and most fruits. But over the years, I've also accrued a number of more troubling diagnoses, phantom ones. In 2016, I convinced myself I had motor neurone disease. In 2022, pancreatitis. According to my OCD brain, I contract liver failure several times a year after accidentally overdosing on paracetamol when I have a cold. Health anxieties are often a feature of obsessive-compulsive disorder. A friend with OCD regularly diagnoses himself with cancer. And health anxiety more generally is common. Some studies suggest 4-5% to of the population are afflicted. It is a particularly difficult form of anxiety to manage, especially when, like me, you do also genuinely suffer with several chronic conditions. It can become almost impossible to trust yourself or your evaluation of your symptoms, which has led me to both wildly overreact and completely underreact to changes in bodily sensations, from demanding an MRI scan after getting a wobbly feeling in my legs while playing badminton, to failing to go to the doctor for a week after breaking my wrist because I assumed that my brain was making up the pain. Trying to take my health seriously, but not let my entire life be consumed by medical appointments, is a relentless challenge, and new concerns often creep up on me. Over the past few months, my worries about going hypo again became fanatical. Any feeling of dizziness, lightheadedness, or even just hunger turned into a spiral. 
What if the doctors read my results wrong and I've actually got type 2 diabetes? What if I faint again and fall onto this train track? Every minor fluctuation was evidence of diabetes or a pancreatic tumour. When I returned home for Christmas, my father tentatively suggested that I'd become obsessive. Why don't you see what happens if you stop compulsively eating brown bread, he asked me. You're not taking me seriously, I snapped back. But secretly, I followed his advice. When I stopped stuffing myself with complex carbohydrates, I didn't faint. And lo and behold, my sporadic feelings of dizziness began to ease. I was irritated that my father had been able to identify my dastardly OCD when I could not. I shouldn't beat myself up though. Whatever the source of my symptoms, it's important to remember that they are still completely real. Their evidence of anxiety, a different but equally debilitating illness to the one that I'm seeking treatment for. A great philosopher put it best, and by great philosopher I mean Dumbledore in Harry Potter and the Dusty Hallows. Of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. But why on earth should that mean that it's not real? Thank you for listening to this episode of Prospect Lives. Join us next month as we discover what trials, tribulations and hopefully triumphs our writers have experienced. If you've enjoyed this episode of Prospect Lives, I'm sure you'll enjoy Media Confidential with me, Alan Rusbridger, alongside Lionel Barber, the former editor of the Financial Times. We take you behind the headlines and beyond the clickbait to uncover the real facts behind a story. A new episode is out every Thursday, so be sure to subscribe and follow Media Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. Prospect Lives is brought to you by Prospect Magazine and produced by Sarah Collins and Martin Points-Roberts for Fresh Air. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next time. Hi, this is Sarah. I write the Mindful Life column. This is just to let you know that Prospect Lives is moving channel. You can now find the Prospect Lives podcast as a bonus episode on our main The Prospect Podcast channel. Please search Prospect Podcast wherever you get your podcast and click subscribe.